church. Today's scripture reading comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. If we have not have the, had the treat to meet one another, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here, and let's begin now with a word of prayer today on Pentecost Sunday, where we remember the Spirit of God is indeed alive and among us. Um, let's anticipate His work. We don't even have to ask. He's here when we gather in His name. And he's promised he'll speak through his word if we have the ears to hear and the eyes to see what God has for us. So let's do that together. God, I'm grateful for who you are. I'm grateful that you have spoken, that you've made us a people who are able to hear. I'm grateful that your spirit takes your word and unpacks it for us. Word often theologians use is illuminates, sheds light on what so often feels like rummaging in the darkness. Because of the Spirit, we can see who you are and how you're working and your love for us that much richer. And so we, we stand today, we sit today unpacking your word, wanting to bask in the light of your Spirit's work. So God, work in our hearts and may we surrender afresh. All for your glory and our good, we say these things and pray these things. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, uh, it was a, a couple weeks ago, I was on the highway, and uh, as is the case when you've got some kiddos and you're trying to make it to a sporting event, we were behind. So, um, and trying to, you know, flat flash forward, trying to get as fast as we could down the highway to get to my son's last soccer game, you know, because then you're like, man, I, I, here's me, just real talk. I paid for this, you know. <laughs> so I'm like, man, I'm getting every dollar out of this sporting event. So uh, we're, we're going, and there's this long line of traffic, and <laughs> they are just going so slow. I was like, man, what in the world? This is the highway, right? Let's get going. So I'm flooring, I'm you know, bobbing and weaving, control of my world, right? And then I finally realized what was the issue. I get to the front, and there was a hearse, right? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't the exact scene, but it's, you know, you're like, how did he get that? I gave my kids a camera. They popped out of the top of the sunroof. <laughs> and uh, the reality is, is, you know, there's, especially with the number of shootings and the dynamics in our world and Ukraine and, I mean, just so many different things. Death feels like it's everywhere. But I don't find, at least in my own life, that I'm not physically close to it, where you're driving past a hearse. And the reality was, as much as I was in control of that moment, or at least so I thought, I looked to my right, and there was someone who had no control. 
there's a day, and as much as I try to control my life now, and as much as I try to organize all the pieces, there is a moment where I will be utterly out of control, and someone, whether we know them or not, will be a hired driver, will be driving me at a pace that is not mine, I'm sure, very slow, to a place that maybe I've designated to be buried. There will come a moment, and here's what we've seen across this brilliant book of Ecclesiastes as we've been walking through. And the longer you live life, the more you come in to, to understand that we are not in control. <laughs> we aren't. And the, the primary image that the author of Ecclesiastes continues to use again and again is this word hevel, okay? Across the Masoretic text, or the Old Testament in Hebrew form, you find this word hevel showing up roughly, best estimates, around 73 times. And it shows up more than half of those 73 times in this 12-chapter book, Ecclesiastes. And what's fascinating about this word is that it doesn't actually mean meaningless. It means that Meaning is often out of our grasp, and it feels like we're more surrounded by confusion rather than defined by meaning. The illustration, the picture that the author of Ecclesiastes is using with Hevel, especially with the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language is very concrete. It was very much story-oriented, so the words, you could tether them down to a specific object or a specific idea that you could touch, you could feel, you could taste the senses. But this word is uniquely abstract. The best we try to grasp around it is hevel, right? Is, is this smoke. It's this mist, this vapor. It's the idea that when you try to grab it, it just it goes through your fingers. You try to grab it, and it goes through your fingers. Now, this podium, right, or this little thing, whatever it is, um, I can move it. I can control it. I want it here because I like the way it sits a little bit, so I'll move it there, you know. I can move it over here. I've got a lot of control over this podium, Smoke, you don't have control over. The moment you see it, you go to grab it, and it wisps around your hands. There is no control. There's, you, can, you can look at it. You can, unfortunately, sometimes smell it. <laughs> you know, you cough a little bit out of your lung. There's side effects to it, but you can't control smoke. And that's, in many ways, what life is like. That's where he's going. Over and over again. This is why the series is called Life Up in Smoke. Because your life is not something you ultimately can control. There's aspects to it. But there's a lot of things in life we cannot control. And the author kind of shows his cards here at the very end. What's interesting, if you read through the book, and as we've been walking through Ecclesiastes, there's actually two main folks here. You have the author who showed up in chapter 1, verse 1, who introduces Kohelet, or the preacher, or the teacher, as he's often called. And then you've got the author, who then circles back around at the end. So you have the author, you have Kohelet, who's been with us most of the way, and then you have the author again at the end. And he's kind of like, I don't know if you ever had a teacher like this, you know, in school. He would, I had, you know, I had a couple good, really good teachers where they'd bring in a video of a really controversial speaker, and then they'd show the video like a TED Talk. And then they would let you watch, and you're sitting there, and you're really confused, and you're like, oh, man, I have no idea what that guy was talking about. I doodled something on my sheet. I don't think it has anything to do. And then the teacher turns off the video, and he says, now, class, what did we learn? Right? And that is what the author is doing. He's basically given us this beautiful, brilliant picture of what Kohelet has to bring, 
And he turns off the TED Talk and he goes, I don't want you to miss the lesson. So let me wrap it up in a nutshell. And what he's, he's shown us is someone who's brilliant. Now, there's a lot of different perspectives as it comes to this guy, Kohelet, that we've seen over these pages. People think that he's narcissistic, he's insane, all these different things. But the reality is, is that the author says, if we look in verses 9 and 10, that this guy was really wise, and he'd organized brilliant sayings. And somehow, even, it may not have been your experience throughout this journey, but that's probably more my fault than it is the text, that it was full of delight, Right? And he was walking through this someone who's extraordinarily sharp, who's got great insight to life. And what Kohelet had seen over and over again is just the uncontrollable nature of life, the uncontrollable nature of pleasure. What do you want with pleasure? You want pleasure to continue to increase, but there's this law of diminishing returns. That the more you engage it, actually the less pleasure you experience, right? The, the older you get, the more pleasure starts to you know, slip through your fingers as your nerves begin to dull and so on. Work, you work really hard. And if you're really good at work, eventually you die. And then you got to give it to someone else that you don't even know what they're going to do with it. So you don't get to control the outcome of your work. Money, the whole idea with money is that you think money is going to give you control, but it actually never satisfies you, never gives you the control you ultimately want and then of course there's justice and it always feels like justice is out of reach and on and on and on youth oh we want to hold on to youth but time keeps marching on there's a time for everything including getting old everything at one point or another will be out of your control and what's fascinating to me is that the author doesn't go where I would naturally assume. Frankly, where a lot of people in our world today and throughout history have gone. When you feel like meaning is elusive or you feel like there's so much you don't understand or there's so much you can't control, an often given response is, well, just do what you want then. <laughs> it's all meaningless, so just do what you want. But that's not where he goes. Even in the midst of this where you don't have control, even when it feels like you're grasping after the smoke, that's not his response. And I know you heard the passage read just like I did over there, so I know you know where this is going, but I want you to hold on because there's more than just knowing this, and I think there's a lot more here than we often give credit. So let's take a look together. If you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And I'd love it. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some copies in the back for you to have and to own. There's something beautiful about owning your own copy of the Scriptures, just feeling it in your hands. We are embodied creatures, so there's something good about something tactile. Or if you have your phone, that's also really great. Um, but I want you to be able to look at it with your own eyes so you can navigate and get to know God's Word for yourself. So the question kind of permeates to the top. What do we do when faced with a life we cannot control? What do we do? Well, let's look together at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. After all this praise of Kohelet, the preacher, says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man or humankind. Now he moves, this is interesting, throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, there's not been a whole lot of commands there's been a lot of description, and especially in verses 9 and 10 and 11. There's a lot of description of what's happening. This is who he is. This is how smart he is. This is what wise words do. This is from the shepherd. But here we get to a command, an ought in life, a should. Some people say you should not have shoulds. Well, there we go. Okay. Um, but this is one. 
we come to a command, what we ought to do in light of everything that Kohelet has taught. This is what the author wants us to see. And what is it? What are we to do when we don't have control? It is to fear God. Now, I know if you know your Bibles and you've been walking with Jesus for a minute, there is a big pause button you want to press, right? Because you think to yourself, hey, 1 John 4.18, you know, perfect love does what? It casts out fear. Wait a second. How th- oh, see, this is God's word, contradictory. You can't follow it. This is what, no, 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 no. And then you may even say, well, listen, fear not. This is a command, one of the most common commands across Scripture. It shows up at least 365 times. That's fascinating, the days of the year. Anyway, interesting dynamic. And, 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 and then I'm told here to fear God. So I'm not supposed to fear. Actually, God's perfect love casts out fear. And then we even sang earlier beautifully, fear cannot survive, Right? We've got brilliant, rich theology in the music that we're singing. I hope that you're actually learning these songs, that you're meditating on them, that you're humming them throughout your week. They're supposed to just, they're shaping our imagination, not just something that gets us to another point in the worship service, right? So what do we do here? Well, fear is one of the most basic emotions we have as human beings, right? It's, it's something we experience very early on in our human nature, And it shapes and it takes shape in a lot of different ways. Fear can be a catalyst for worry. It can be a catalyst for anxiety. It can be a catalyst for doubt. It can be a catalyst for feeling desperate. All of this is bubbling up from fear. But often when we come to fear, we come with an oversimplified understanding of our human experience. We come with fear, this understanding of fear being equal to terror. You know, you watch a horror movie. That's what fear is, right? Full stop. And it's like, wait a second. Maybe, just maybe, we haven't understood the complexity of who we are as human beings. And maybe, just maybe, God's word taps into that complexity better than our simplistic categories we often approach life with. Maybe God's word has something to teach us about us. And so when we come here, we're going to look at two specific Hebrew words that actually are translated fear in the English, okay? And I know, too, if you've come from a particular church background, this, there could be some fears, like, where is he going with this? Is this where, like, suddenly God's coming down with an iron fist and we all got to be terrorized? I want you to just hang on with me. If you've got some dynamics there around this language of fearing God, we're going to look at God's word and come with some greater clarity and greater richness to how we are to respond to who God is. So two words. I want you to say yare. yare. Now say pachad. Now clean off the neck of the person in front of you, right? Now here's the deal. Those are two words. They're both often translated fear or with fear type language. And what we're going to do to explore kind of the distinction here to get a greater complexity of the fear of God is we're going to go to another wisdom book. So the book Ecclesiastes is a part of a literary type called wisdom literature, where you're coming expecting a certain kind of thing from the text. I go to the wisdom literature expecting something different than I do from the Gospels. Not a different God, but I come with a different set of questions because it's a different type of literature. In some places where that is also true is in the book of Proverbs. You've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. These are three Old Testament books that are all a part of the wisdom literature. Some people include Song of Solomon. Some include parts of Psalms. And so for us to have just... 
let's just go very contemporary. Let's go to the, just the next layer in the context. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1, okay? So you got Ecclesiastes. If you got your Bible, go over one book to the book of Proverbs chapter 1. And here we have these two words. We have both yare and pachad. And I want to start with the guttural, all right? Pachad, all right? So look with me at chapter 1, verse 33 of Proverbs. This is that word pachad. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Sometimes that's fear of disaster is sometimes how it's translated as well. Now, this is very poetic. So Hebrew poetry, you have what's called parallelism. This is just a little side note because I want us to be able to read our Bibles well, okay? In Hebrew, parallelism within poetry, there's one line and then the next line helps either deepen it, expand it, contradict it, but they're playing off of one another. So you see the first line, but whoever listens to me will dwell secure. So if you listen, you'll be secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster, will be at ease without dread of disaster. This is expanding the understanding. So what does secure mean? That means I'll be at ease. And without this fear, this terror, this utter earth-shaking kind of fear of disaster, of your world falling apart. So this definitely has the idea of terror. This is horror movie style, earth-shaking, bone-shaking, gut-quivering kind of fear on display here. If we don't listen to wisdom... There is an appropriate sense or just a natural sense of dread that will come when we rub up against the grain of life as it is designed. But if we go up to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, we find something fascinating. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. This word fear is the word yare. And this is actually the word that we find in Ecclesiastes 12. This is the kind of fear... That's a little bit different than terror. This is not meant to be the kind of paralyzing fear where you can't move and you can't move your bodies because God's some huge monster about to squash you. How do we understand the fear of the Lord? For that, there's a helpful book I'd encourage you to check out. It's called Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord by Michael Reeves. And he does a deep dive into the understanding that keeps popping up throughout the scriptures of the fear of the Lord and how that's different from the commands to fear not and the different kinds of fear on display within scripture and within our lives. And he writes this. He says, For the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him, so pleases God, is not a groveling, shrinking fear. Why? He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is. And that, therefore, leans on him in staggered praise and faith. It's anchored in who God is and who you understand him to be and how has he revealed himself. For that, remember what we've said again and again as we've been walking through Ecclesiastes. You don't just read Ecclesiastes alone. It's anchored. It's built upon the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you go to Exodus chapter 34, if you want to know how God describes himself when he is going before Moses, he says this, chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, this is what God says about himself, the Lord 
the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You have this extraordinary mercy, this slow to anger. And often it's always fascinating. We watch those Bible project videos. The slow to anger idea is mainly the literal is that a long nose. Because when you get really angry, your nose starts to get red. So the idea is that God's nose is really long because it takes a long time for the whole thing to get red. Just fascinating little side note. But um, I just think God's word is so wonderful. I love the imagery and I can't help myself. So what we see here is just this God who's beautiful and powerful and wonderful. And yes, he's still just. And what is Moses' response in the next couple verses? He bows down and he worships. He's in awe of who God is. So what does this mean? Like, let's, let's dive into this fear language. And why do the translators use fear when we often come, especially in some of these new translators, when we come with this terrorized kind of shaking off in the distance, I need to separate myself from God kind of experience when we think of the word fear. How does this kind of fear of God feel? Now, here's what's fascinating, and this is, this is why I think this is important, because they're seeking to, to explain kind of the complex realities that we have with fear. Psychologists, you talk to anybody, and, and if you start doing this in your own life where you start paying attention to your body, psychologists will say, in a moment, we often run to what we think rather than what we're feeling in our bodies. A good psychologist will say, okay, in that moment, what are you feeling? I'm feeling my abdomen tighten up. I'm feeling my heart begin to race because we are much more integrated human beings, right? Or what are you paying attention to in your body? And here's what's fascinating. Being nervous and being excited, your body has the same response. Psychologists notice this. They say, hey, okay, you're, you're, what are you feeling? Oh, these are the same things that when I'm nervous that something bad's going to happen or when I'm really excited that something good's going to happen. What's the difference? How you interpret the situation. But your body is responding in the same way. Either it could be negative or it could be positive. Such that when we come before God and we are overwhelmed, and this is me doing a little bit of exploration around this fear, when we come to the fear of God and what Michael Reeves unpacked in his book, when we come to him, yes, if we have a framework that is utterly terrifying that God is going to smash us, then things are going to happen in our bodies. The way we're going to feel in front of him will feel like terror. But if we understand who he is, that he's slow to anger, that he's rich in mercy, and now that this side of the cross, we understand how great his grace is toward us, we are overwhelmed still, but by joy. You're overwhelmed. You may feel the same in your body, but you're interpreting it like this God. Look at all of who he is, and he is for me. It's an awe over all who he is that leads to an overwhelming, yes, even a gut-shaking reality of joy in the presence of God. His glory, it shakes you. And this makes sense because, listen, they fear God and then the next line, and keep his commandments. You will never, I will never, we will never keep God's commandments if it's just about this idea that he is this terrorizing monster, always looking for me to keep the rules. I'm going to look for a loophole. I'm going to find a place to hide, and then I'm going to eventually do what I want, thinking he's not looking. Always. Guilt will not motivate you to wholeness. Gratitude 
Now that's a different, that's a different motivation altogether where you understand this is who God is and you're shook by his greatness and he's pursuing your good. And now you say, well, how can I not but follow you? Even in the shadows of the valley of death, there I'll know you with me. Psalm 23, we start to come with this greater understanding of the intimacy and the glory all wrapped up in who God is and how he's showing up for us and pursuing us. And so Kohelet and the author, these two together, they want to, pre- they want to present something to us that is truly beautiful and wise. They're not trying to say, hey, I want you to live your life paralyzed by fear, worried that God is this extraordinary tyrant who's going to come ready to squash you if you mess up one way. Here's the wisdom they want you to hold on to. Trusting God when you don't understand frees you to enjoy today as a gift. Trusting God when you don't understand frees you to enjoy today as a gift. This is what they want you to hold on to, because here's the deal. There's a lot that Kohelet doesn't understand. He doesn't understand why pleasure is so fleeting. He doesn't understand why injustice continues to reign. He doesn't understand why his work will have to be handed off to someone else. He doesn't understand why the righteous and the wicked both die and experience the same outcome. He finds himself more in mystery. And some of you know that all too well. You felt like your life was out of control, and you don't understand why. Maybe it was the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of a marriage. And you find yourself sitting in mystery, and there are no cliched answers that can meet you there. Sometimes we as Christians, we just come up with these little pithy things in the midst of pain. We hope it comforts. I know it's well-intentioned, but in the reality is often we just need to sit in the mystery and not say anything. And that can be one of the greatest gifts. And Kohelet, he's asking hard questions. And here's the thing with mystery. Mystery doesn't let you control. Mystery, you do this. (laughs) You don't do this. Mystery, you have to say, well, I don't understand how that's working out. And I don't understand how God's working here. I don't understand. And that's okay. And what that requires, when you come to an understanding that you're not in control and that there are spaces where mystery will reign for a period of time, it requires you to trust. You see what trust is not? Trust is not 100% certainty because you just convinced yourself. You believe yourself. (laughs) Trust is not having all the facts sometimes, right? Trust is not saying, you know what, I've got it all figured out. There are plenty of times in life where it's gray or it's confusion and you find yourself and you go, listen, I don't know what to do. Trust is not control. Trust is the opposite. And when we come to God, we don't come with control. We come with trust. And that's where the awe and the fear step in because we're overwhelmed with who he is. How can I not trust you? Even though I don't understand how this works, I don't understand why the righteous and the wicked have the same outcome. I don't understand why the wicked sometimes are prospering and the, wicked and the righteous are the ones suffering. I don't always understand why pleasure is decreasing or why this marriage didn't work out or this job didn't pan out. All, I may not understand all of this, but that's where trust comes, not control. You know what trust is not? It's not all of those things, but here's what trust is. It is 
saying, God, you're worthy of me. Trust it means you can have all of me. Trust means I'll follow you even when I don't understand. Even when I don't understand. And this is a really uncomfortable place to be, isn't it? <laughs> to not understand and to still walk forward. To not understand and to stand still when you'd like to walk forward. That is extremely uncomfortable. We want certainty even if it's a lie. Because there's a comfort, even if it's a self-delusion, that someone's got utter control. But here's the deal. Trusting God when you don't understand it frees you to enjoy today as a gift. And that's the second half here. And now, only when you start to understand how this trust and this fear and this awe is coming together, that, that, that there's plenty of things that we don't control, there's plenty of things that you can't just map out and you can determine the outcome of, there's so much that you have to surrender. to. Only when you get to that are you able and freed to actually enjoy today as a gift. And now we start to understand these little hints that Kohelet's been dropping throughout Ecclesiastes. Because when you go through, you're like, man, this is so sarcastic. Is it? Is it? Or is it we want it to be sarcastic because we want more control? Where he's like, hey, work is really hard and sometimes feels like you're not getting anywhere, but just enjoy the pocket of joy you have in your work on that day. Frees you to enjoy the today as a gift. Hey, enjoy the spouse you have today. Enjoy the relationships you have today. Enjoy the amount of money you've been given because that also is a gift for that particular need and that particular... It's a lot of answering what sounds like the Lord's Prayer of give us this day our daily bread. Oh, you've given me this bread today. You're here. But what about tomorrow? Tomorrow's got enough worries of its own. Isn't that what Jesus says? And we say, yeah, but what about the 401k? You know, it's like, come on, it's like, hey, what about my savings? What about my retirement? What? And we get worried. We get captured with all these future things that we want to control. And there's an element of planning and, yes, doing what you can today. But there's a lot in life you're just not going to understand. And we've got to be able to trust God with that, and that will free you. You see, Kohelet and the author agree that they don't control their lives. Whatever they get, they use the language of gift. Whatever they've been given, it's a gift. They didn't control it. It's not like I worked 40 hours and I got my paycheck. There's never like, God gave me my day and it was my paycheck. That's control. I put in this amount, I expect this much out in return. Every time he talks about it, it's a gift. It's a gift. He doesn't have control over it. It's receiving what God indeed gives. And then the tears of injustice, the tears of brokenness, he surrenders them up. And of course, he still has a lot of questions. This is <laughs> about the book of Ecclesiastes. There's so many questions that aren't answered. There are a lot of questions from Kohelet that are not given a clear, definitive answer. This is that mystery piece once again. And so if anybody tells you, hey, hey, you know what? You need to stop questioning God. You need to stop question asking these types of questions of your faith. You need to stop asking... I would say just point them to Ecclesiastes because right there in our scriptures, we are giving, given a script, a guide to wrestle with our questions and then to not have those perfect clean cut answers at the end and still have the capacity to trust God. 
You mean I don't have to have like the perfect theological formulation of the moment, every moment in order to trust God? No, that is not the order we find in Scripture. The order is trust in the midst of the mystery, and he'll lead you into understanding over time. And so so many oftentimes we try to mix it around. Oh, the reason you're not trusting is because you don't understand. No, understanding is not required for trust. You can be in the mystery. You can ask questions. You can wrestle. As long as we're learning from those questions and growing. Because here's the other thing. In, In another sense, you could ask, well, why didn't he just write those last verses? I've got a busy day and a busy life. Why not just give me 9 through 14, okay, of chapter 12? Because the goal isn't just giving you an answer. So often we're like, just give me the answer. I can control the answer, and now I can do life as I want. Instead, all of this is about the journey of growing in intimacy with God, allowing yourself to grow in trust with God where you can bring your doubts, you can bring your frustrations and wrestle with them and allow God to actually meet you there so that when you come out with the answer, you don't walk away from God with the answer. Do you see what I'm saying? We wrestle with trust. And when we don't trust God, what we often do is try to control him. If we can't control the world, if we can't control our outcomes, then in a last-ditch effort, we try to control God. And what controlling God looks like, usually the outcome of that is bitterness. Because we say, God, why aren't you more like me? I had this time, I had these goals, and you're not delivering. I asked them according to your formula that you laid out, and it's not coming in the way I thought it should come. Why aren't you? And we get presumptuous, and we expect all of these things in the way that we would have planned it out because we're trying to control God and what he ought to give us rather than trusting him even when you don't understand and then freeing you to finally sit in the day and say, I can't control this, but I know you got me. I can't control this, but I'm going to take what I have today as a gift. There's a lot of wisdom there, friends, and it's really hard. And herein lies, I think, the warning that I often took out of context when I was in high school. Um, (laughs) You know, the author says, you know what, if you you don't want to believe what I'm about to say, there are and you want to go looking for another way, he goes to verse 12. Look what he says. He says, my son, in that language of son and father, you find that in the book of Proverbs, said, well, that's basically just a teacher and a student, this common framework for this teacher kind of relationship. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. You can quote that to teachers as much as you want. <laughs> and I tried. Because I'm manipulative and I've got issues. It's good for the soul to confess it out loud and the people of God. (laughs) But he's like, man, all of it's been said. I've explored everything. And he's like, there's always more. Now, does that mean we shouldn't study? This is sometimes used as an anti-intellectual. It's like, oh, my goodness, you just got to stop reading all these books. You got to stop thinking. You just, just trust. That's actually not what I'm saying. Because goodness gracious, the author writes a book and expects you to read it and think about it. (laughs) That would... He's like, hey, don't read my book. No, that would be ridiculous. So that's not what he's communicating here. Rather, the question is, are you reading, looking for a rationale to do what you really want and ignore what God has actually said is good for you? Because listen, if you go looking for a loophole of control, it will steal your joy. 
looking for loopholes of control. They steal your joy. And that's where this is important to read this, not from our 21st century context where we make the mind the center. The mind has always been important across Scripture. But the center of the Hebrew heart and worldview was the actual heart. What the heart wants, they understood the mind finds justifiable and the hands find doable. So are you reading, going looking for quasi-credentialed or maybe even credentialed individuals who will spin a particular theological or framework to justify what you really want rather than what God has revealed in his word that is good for you? Well, so-and-so said this was okay. I know what God's word said, but I know this person over here said, so I'm going to trust them. We're reading in order to find a loophole of control to do what we really want, and we put our hearts at the center and our desires at the center rather than what God is longing for us in the center. You know, if, if you're reading this, you may think, and you know your Bible well, and if you don't, that's why we're here, because we're growing in an understanding of God's word. But something that was fresh for me was just how similar this is to Genesis 3. If you go all the way to the beginning... Adam and Eve had enough information, actually, <laughs> to trust God and to live in his garden. And then the serpent comes in and is like, hey, did God really say that? You know what he's actually doing? A reinterpretation of who he is. This is a different kind of fear now. He's keeping this back from you. He doesn't want you to be as great as you could be. This is going to be really awesome. And he's holding it back because he doesn't want you to have some of the best things in life. New information in order to justify taking the fruit and doing what you ultimately want, which led to their own destruction and death and pain. And this is the weariness of the flesh that will come. Not just because it's exhausting to read a lot of books, for some of us more exhausting than others, but... It's more of what comes when you go seeking to justify anything that you feel like you want to do over against what God has called us to be. After all, and this is what's fascinating and where he ends, all roads will lead to God, but not in the way we often think. We won't be able to hide. And this is a Genesis 3 thing. Again, look with me, verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. That word secret there, it's also the same word for hide. Intentionally covering. Where have we seen that? Genesis 3. They're reading. They're, they're getting new information to justify what they really want, taking the fruit. And when they do, there's a weariness of the flesh. And when God comes, instead of experiencing the awe and overwhelmed with the joy of who he is, now they have a different lens for the same God that they were just walking with of terror because they had disobeyed God. And now they're trying to hide. This is Genesis 3 all over the place. And the reality is, is God will find us. And it will be his definition of good and evil. Not ours. We don't get to control that. Another thing we don't get to control. But this is, that's not fair. This is what I think is good to me. Well, great. But it won't lead to the outcome you want. The end result is what is good to God. And that is ultimately what is good for you all the way into eternity. So even here, we don't have control. So the question, in the midst of this, trusting God when we don't understand in the midst of mystery, it's going to free us to actually be able to enjoy today as a gift because we don't come with the same level of expectations that God must do things in our timeline and we have to somehow control God or control our lives. And instead of looking for these loopholes of control that will actually steal our joy, knowing that at the end of the day, everyone will come to stand before him, 
There's no way to escape it. What do we do when faced with a life we cannot control? Let's return to that opening question. And this is where Kohelet and the author are guiding us. They're saying, make the painful changes we can today. You can't control everything, but there have been certain things and certain decisions we have been entrusted with. We see this in verse 11, where he talks about wise words being goads. I mean, everybody knows what a goad is, right? The sheep and the goads or something? I don't know. I'm just kidding. Um, Dumb Bible joke. I apologize if you don't understand what that is. You're probably better for it. Um, Goads, here's actually a really helpful definition from the handbook on the wisdom books and the Psalms. They prompt the reader to action just as spurs drive cattle in the desired direction. A goad is something sharp and pointy that actually pokes you to move you in the right direction. The idea is that sometimes wise words are painful and they're pointing you towards the path of life and hope. And and sometimes it's saying, turn now. I know you want to keep going, but turn now. That's going to lead to death. Turn now. That's the end of a cliff. That's where the path goes. And it pokes you and it prods you so that you might experience less pain in the long term. And the question is, will we make the painful changes we can today? Because repentance or turning is painful. It's laying something down. It's saying, I don't have control anymore. This is not something, because there's a comfort, once again, in holding tight. The illusion of control. Oh, I'm going to hold on to this. I've got it. I'm going to take. No, you don't. Ultimately, we've got to do this. So let me get real practical. Where do you need to surrender control to God today? To trust him with what you don't understand in order to enjoy today as a gift. We all struggle with control. It looks different at different ages. Like the second word we learn as human beings, if it's not the first, is no, right? To parents. And then when we get older, the idea of saying no to our children or to no to those around us because we can no longer control our finances as our bodies begin to shut down and different dynamics until finally someone's taking care of us and we're completely helpless in the end. Surrender is difficult no matter where you are on the spectrum of life. And eventually everything will fall out of our control. Wisdom is saying this, surrender it before you have to. Surrender it before you have to, because you'll actually enjoy today. Surrender it before you have to. So what do you need to surrender to control to God? Do you need to surrender your future? Maybe a spouse, a job, a future home, a future loft, the hope of children, future joy, future pain, or the fear of pain in the future, future love, future friendships? Do you need to surrender something in the past? A wound that is yet to turn into a scar, a past hurt, a past loss, betrayal, trauma, or maybe something in the present, a worry, something that feels conflicting or a conflict you have with a coworker, a struggle, your doubts, the turmoil you feel, maybe all of that needs to be surrendered. And none of this is necessarily easy, and there's not necessarily easy answers. That's not what I'm trying to provide this morning, and that's not what Kohelet's seeking to provide. And you don't have to have it all figured out. Don't, don't, let, don't tell yourself, you know what, once I get this figured out, then I, no, 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 no. 
Let Kohelet guide you. You can come with a ton of mystery, still a lot of questions, and just say, I need to give it to you. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't even know why I'm doing this, but I'm going to trust you, God. Don't let your mind stop your heart, but let your mind interpret where your heart's going and surrender to him. It may not mean that tomorrow has less pain. It may not mean that you'll forget the pain of yesterday. And it may not give you all the answers you want. But in the end, it'll guide us towards the one who has us. And we have a leg up, frankly, on Kohelet and the author, because we stand this side of the resurrection. He's inviting us to do this because of what God had revealed throughout Torah and throughout Moses and throughout Israel. But now we have a God who came when we didn't want him to come. You know why? Because distance is a way to control people. If I can just keep him far off, then I don't have to know him. He doesn't have to know me. Distance is a way of control. And there's no way that God would stoop this low, and he did. And then God died for us. And we can tell ourselves, you know what? I, I, and people tried to stop him from dying. And disgust is another way of controlling. No way he would stoop this low to die for me. So therefore, he's not worthy of my love and my devotion. But he didn't stay in the grave. God arose on the third day, even though we tried to keep him in the grave. And disbelief is another form of control. It's a way of saying, you know what? There's no way you could have defeated the grave. And all of this is us trying to control, to hold on to our own power, to hold on to a space that we're ultimately going to have to surrender and then on, the, on Pentecost, what we've been celebrating this morning and just remembering his presence, he gave us his spirit. Why? Yes, to mediate forgiveness so that we can know forgiveness, but to give us the power to live differently with a new kind of trust where the spirit within us is actually teaching us to trust, to actually live the wise life that Jesus himself lived. Because so hear me this morning, you may be in a significant moment of mystery. I will not give you cliched answers because scripture will not give you cliche answers. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we won't understand until we are with him. There are moments and pains that don't make sense. That is living in a broken world with sin. But you can still trust him. And I want you to know the gift of trusting him, even when you don't understand, is that you can now experience today as a gift and you can trust him even more because of what he's done through Jesus. So trust him today. It's not only wisdom. It's life. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for Ecclesiastes. It, it has not been, I would say, an easy journey. But that is the nature of wisdom. So often we want the fruit and the wisdom of trials without the pain. <laughs> but we needed to wrestle. And I pray, Lord, that we would not quickly forget the words of Ecclesiastes, but they would become a part of our imagination. They would shape our longings. And that we would stand with the appropriate kind of fear before you, overwhelmed with joy over your compassion towards us in the gospel. And it would, yes, shake us, but shake us to move with greater love towards those around us and an intimacy with you rather than a pushing away from you. God, that is only possible by the power of your spirit. So we entrust this time, and frankly, I even recognize the complexity of this, the different layers of this, the easy confusion of this. 
So would you guide this now? May this be the beginning of our journey in the book of Ecclesiastes and not the end. May we have gained some new tools where we individually are going deeper into the book of Ecclesiastes. And may each of us surrender all the more. Whatever we're holding back, whatever we think we have to hold on to to get what we think we want, may we instead choose wisdom and lay it before you, our great and glorious God. We love you. Thanks for loving us first and loving us always. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. And now we come to a meal.